This is Melissa, and today is the 20th of August, 2023, and this redux is from August the 2nd, 2020, and the title and little two-line poem that goes with it, All Hail Capcom, Capitalists Finance Communists to Bring in Equality. For technocrats, the good life. For proles, mediocrity. I had listened to this week before last and thought that I would go with the first hour then, but then chose to go with the 16th of August last week just because, uh, who knows, something grabbed my attention then. I was going to, as I said, put up the first hour of this talk, but then when I spoke with Brandon Turbeville on Real History, he made an interesting point about the value of Allen's work. And he said, we were talking about smoking guns, conspiracy theories and smoking guns, those things that people say, if we can just show people this, if we can just uncover that, if we can just prove this point. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about Kennedy assassination or the Twin Towers or a virus or whatever, I simply don't believe that a, a smoking gun finding it and exposing it makes a difference or would make a difference because you're talking about an ancient agenda that has worked intergenerationally. But what Brandon said was, he said that he thought that the real smoking gun were the quotes and excerpts from the dusty old books that Alan shared with us. He gave a, a few examples of that. The, the, the main example that he gave was Club of Rome, um, talking about all of the different things, and I, I didn't pull that quote up, but basically pestilence and famine, global warming, things like that would fit the bill. How can they unify people, bypass democracy, and bring people under their control? Global warming, that would fit the bill. And I thought that he made a good point that Alan did that most excellently, that he returned over and over again to the dusty old books and demonstrated the agenda in the words and writings of those who planned and implemented or just publicized it. I chose the second hour of the talk instead of the first. Here's why. In the first hour, Alan talked about war. What is war? It's really theft. It's the theft of resources. And it, we, they use simplistic propaganda to put it across to us, but it really is theft. And then he made an interesting thought-provoking comment that it is therefore materialism. And I say thought-provoking because both in the first and the second hour he talked about religion and how important it was to destroy it because it's there that you find the, the, the real, the true big idea that those... He, he said, like George Bush, who have stolen that. Um, but a real, a genuine big idea actually has the potential to derail this ancient agenda. 
So in the first hour, that is what he talked about, but in the second hour, he went into a quite a good description of the psychopath and psychopathy, and that is who runs us. We're run by psychopaths. And it was also in this second hour that he shared with us lengthy quotations from Bertrand Russell's writings. And those, those are good to think about, good to be reminded about. And for those of you who don't have the time and interest in, in seeking out Bertrand Russell's writings, well, there's Alan to read a big chunk of it. And you get to understand what the elite think of us, uh, how they plan to control our lives, use science to control our lives, and so forth. This week, someone sent me an article from Global Research out of Canada. And they just said, in case you're still researching the Aspen Institute, you might find this interesting. And I haven't had any additional time to research the Aspen Institute, but I'm definitely still interested in them and interested in anything that anyone stumbles upon that has to do with them. So one thing that Alan would say about a global research article, he often visited that site, and I think he had respect for the kinds of writing that came out of there, but he always needed to caution uh, this site is leaning far to the left, and that was it. That was his caution. So, <laughs> this site is leaning far to the left, but this is a good article, and there are lots of good articles to be found on global research. Divide and rule. Italy's PM, Giorgia Maloney, is Biden's political asset. U.S. behind Niger coup d'etat. America's hegemonic wars against Europe and Africa. A year prior to Italy's 2022 elections, Georgia Maloney was invited to join the Aspen Institute. I looked into that and I think it was as far back as 2020 that she became involved in the Italian branch of the Aspen Institute. A Washington-based strategic think tank with close relations to the Council on Foreign Relations, CFR, the Atlantic Council, and the Military-Industrial Complex. The Aspen Institute is also involved in the arms industry, with links to arms manufacturing giants such as Boeing and Lockheed Martin. It has typically supported the U.S.'s, quote, democracy-defending, end quote, or, quote, democracy propagating humane and civilized end quote wars as if there really is such a thing as a humane and civilized war right i also wanted to add in there that my own research into the aspen institute and the pritzker and crown families that are so involved in that institute i discovered that the crown family has owned or had controlling interest in General Dynamics. Um, one of the, I believe one of the Crown families still sits as the director, uh, the, the director of the General Dynamics board, unless that's the one who passed away in June. I'm not sure about that. But the Crown family is heavily involved in General Dynamics, and that is another 
close. That, that's, that's another biggie in the military-industrial complex. Prominent U.S. politicians, including Madeleine Albright. Remember Madeleine Albright? She's the uh, sanctions on Iraqi, the deaths of half a million women and children was worth it. Condoleezza Rice, as well as Victoria Newland, have actively collaborated with the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is generously funded by the Gates Foundation, the Rockefellers, Carnegie, and the Ford Foundation, not to mention Goldman Sachs, which over the years has played a key role in the, quote, selection, end quote, of Italian politicians. It is worth noting that on February 20, 2023, Joe Biden made an unannounced visit to Kiev, meeting up with President Zelensky. And on the following day, Italy's Prime Minister, Giorgia Maloney, promptly followed suit, traveling to Kiev to meet up with the corrupt Ukrainian president. She affirmed Italian support for Ukraine and said that her government intends to supply Spada and Skyguard air defense systems to the Ukrainian army. Is Italy's Prime Minister Maloney an instrument, political asset of Washington? The answer is obvious. Then it goes to give a lengthy timeline of Georgia Maloney's visits to Washington her visits to Ukraine, but this isn't interesting. It go, the article goes on to get into Victoria Newland. Now, Victoria Newland is currently the acting Secretary of State under Antony Blinken, who is the Secretary of State, or she's the acting Under Secretary. However, they describe that. I'll pause for a moment because the takeaway that I want to leave you with here is. Who's in charge? Who's running things? What are their backgrounds? And Alan would always say, we have to know the affiliations, the oaths, so to speak, that those in power have sworn to keep. And interestingly, in that second hour of this Redux, um, it's a four-hour-plus talk. It could even be four and a half hours, so I just picked about a little over an hour to put up, plus my own uh, babbling, ramblings to add to it. But Alan got into Freemasonry and Albert Pike and revolutionary Mazzini Freemasonry, not the, you know, kind of low-level thing that we think of as Masonic clubs now. But it is essential that we really look into these organizations and not just Biden or Trump or Maloney or Macron or you know whoever we think is in charge, Sunak. It's those that they are surrounded by because what you find generally they're surrounded by people who are lifers and they may even be second or third or fourth generation diplomats or bureaucrats. So we need to look closely at those people and who they're affiliated with. So let's take a little peek at Victoria Newland. First of all, I want to point out that Victoria Newland's husband is Robert Kagan. And Robert Kagan was a co-founder in 1998 of the neoconservative 
project for the new American century, PNAC. And Alan has talked extensively at length, ad nauseum, about PNAC. So, enough said about Robert Pagan, Victoria Newland's husband. Victoria Newland herself, she goes way back. Basically, since her youth, she was Bill Clinton's chief of staff to his deputy secretary of state, Strobe Talbot. Then she moved to serve as deputy director for former Soviet Union affairs. In the Bush administration, she served as the principal deputy foreign policy advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney, exercising an influential role during the Iraq War. In President George W. Bush's second term, she was U.S. ambassador to NATO, okay, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. There, she concentrated on mobilizing European support for NATO intervention in Afghanistan. In the summer of 2011, Newland became special envoy for conventional armed forces in Europe and then became State Department spokesperson. She was Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. She had a significant, significant role to play during the so-called Maidan uprising in Ukraine, 2013-2014. What, let's just call it the complete overthrow or destabilization of Ukraine. You'll find Victoria Newland all over it, and she's still there. 2021, Joe Biden nominated Newland to serve as Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs under Antony Blinken. Okay, who is Antony Blinken? Antony Blinken is the Secretary of State for the U.S., and we won't get too much into him except I want to point out that Antony Blinken's father was Donald Blinken. He was a businessman and a diplomat. He was the co-founder of the investment bank Warburg Pincus. Now, the Warburg Pincus entity started in the mid-60s, I think 1966. But this comes directly from the Warburg group, Eric Warburg of the Warburg banking family, who figured so absolutely definitively in the restructuring of the financial system pre and post-World War I, etc., etc. So those are the Warburgs. Uh, Donald Blinken was a diplomat. He served most significantly in his public service life was uh, the ambassador to Hungary from 1994 to 1997. An uncle, a brother of Donald, uncle to Antony, was also the United States ambassador to Belgium. I just want you to remember that when you are hearing the, the term, the title ambassador, this is State Department, so this is international affairs. I'm not really a slow reader, but I don't have a lot of time for what you might call extra reading or getting into the dusty old books. 
but I have been making my way through, I'm almost halfway through Foundations or Power and Influence. But because of this redux, I wanted to skip ahead, see what this book had to say about the Council on Foreign Relations. And so I did mark, it did, it did absolutely have something to say about the CFR on page 200 of my copy. It's called Foundation Impact on Foreign Policy, the Foundation Complex in, quote, internationalism, end quote. Foundation activity has nowhere had a greater impact than in the field of foreign affairs. It has conquered public opinion and has largely established the international political goals of our country. A few major foundations with internationalist tendencies created or fostered a varied group of organizations which now dominate the research, the education, and the supply of experts in the field. Among such instruments are the Council on Foreign Relations, the Foreign Policy Association, the Institute of Pacific Relations, the United Nations Association, and the conferences and seminars held by American universities on international relations and allied subjects. It would be difficult to find a single foundation-supported organization of any substance which has not favored the United Nations or similar global schemes. Fantastically heavy foreign aid at the burdensome expense of the taxpayer, meddling in the colonial affairs of other nations, and American military commitments over the globe. Though the sums of money put up by the internationalist-minded foundations may seem relatively small in comparison with larger grants spent elsewhere, they have enabled their satellite or subsidized organizations to play a conspicuous and dominating role. This was comparatively easy to accomplish because there was no organized or foundation-supported opposition. The influence of the foundation complex in internationalism has reached far into government, into the policy-making circles of Congress, and into the State Department. This has been affected through the pressure of public opinion, mobilized by the instruments of the foundations, through the promotion of foundation favorites as teachers and experts in foreign affairs, through a domination of the learned journals in international affairs, through the frequent appointment of State Department officials to foundation jobs, and through the frequent appointment of foundation officials to State Department jobs. At least one foreign foundation has had a strong influence on our foreign policy. The Rhodes Scholarship Fund of Great Britain, created to improve England's international public relations but not registered here as a foreign agent, has gained great influence in the United States for British ideas. It has accomplished this by annually selecting a choice group of promising young men for study in England, including Bill Clinton. The usually Anglophile alumni of this system are to be found in eminent positions in legislation, administration, and education, and in the ranks of American Foundation officials. They form a patronage network of considerable importance. I am going to skip over a little bit of the Rhodes Foundation and the Rhodes Scholarships. It's quite interesting, but more germane. I want to get a little bit more into the CFR. 
The Council on Foreign Relations, another member of the international complex, financed both by the Rockefeller and Carnegie Foundations, overwhelmingly propagandizes the globalist concept. Now, everybody, anybody who's anybody is in the CFR. I've pointed out the numerous people from the Aspen Institute, including uh, the lead Pritzker right now, is... CFR. Hillary Clinton said basically that's where she gets marching orders. Anybody who's anybody. This organization became virtually an agency of the government. Remember, they're not a government organization, right? But they became virtually an agency of the government when World War II broke out. The Rockefeller Foundation had started and financed certain studies known as the War and Peace Studies, manned largely by associates of the Council and State Department. In due course, these studies took over, retaining the major personnel which the Council on Foreign Relations had supplied. One of the propaganda objectives of the Council on Foreign Relations was promotion of the historical blackouts. The 1946 report of the Rockefeller Foundation one of the supporters of the Council contained this. The Committee on Studies of the Council on Foreign Relations is concerned that the debunking journalistic campaign following World War I should not be repeated and believes that the American public deserves a clear and competent statement of our basic aims and activities during the Second World War. Okay. Renee Wormser, the author of this book, said, This statement deserves pause. It has obvious political intention. It cannot be considered objective. Several eminent historians have written books critical of much of the government position in World War I. It is nothing short of reprehensible for a tax-exempt organization to smear such critical historians with the term debunking journalism. The plan called for a three-volume history of World War II in which there was to be no, quote, debunking, end quote. Note that this clearly was to be no objective study. The official propaganda of World War II was to be perpetuated. As Professor Charles Austin Beard put it, in short, they hoped that, among other things, the policies and measures of Franklin D. Roosevelt will escape in the coming years the critical analysis, evaluation, and exposition that befell the policies and measures of Woodrow Wilson and the Entente Allies after World War I. Professor Harry Elmer Barnes, in The Historical Blackout and Perpetual War for Perpetual Peace, described what amounted to a conspiracy to prevent the American people from learning the truth. This conspiracy was foundation-supported. The Rockefeller Foundation allotted 139000 that would be a tidy sum way back then, to the production of the three-volume history, which was to debar debunking. This is the same Rockefeller Foundation whose current president has, in two recent addresses, proclaimed its insistence on continuing to support controversy. So, I, I love that title there. If I had time to find track down that dusty old book, The Historical Blackout and Perpetual War for Perpetual Peace. You see, the people who have been in control of American politics, and I'll just say it, therefore, international geopolitics...
are internationalists and have been since World War II at least. And this becomes clear only if you're willing to dive into the dusty old books and do the research. Because I just pointed out very quickly several key players in current politics who are tied to the now uh, defunct but in no way uh, spiritually dead PNAC, the Council on Foreign Relations, and what we'll just refer to as forever war or perpetual war. So that's enough. I will leave you with Alan's brilliant talk and thank you. And the people who go into certain areas are more devious than anybody else. You know, the higher up in governmental levels and, and corporation levels, all they do is sit and scheme how to get more and how to manipulate and how to take and how to, how to, to, to demolish competition all the time as well. You know, the billions of dollars that go into all your intelligence agencies every year. Billions and billions, multiple billions of dollars in every country is to, to find ways to scheme and to lie and, and to deceive other nations and their own people by different techniques and so on and by persuasion and lies and so on uh, so that those who own you can, can take more from you or take more resources from countries. That's why you go to war with countries. It's all economic. Marx was right in that. That war is the root of all the wars is economics. It's, it's materialism. Stealing, you know. Yeah. We steal it because we want it. But for the public, you must demon, you know, demonize the people. That they're, they're led by this terrible maniac over there who's nasty to his own people. And very simple propaganda. And the simpler the better. If it's too complex, you can, you can pick it apart. So keep it simple. And Saddam Hussein was just a terribly bad man. He was killing thousands of his own people all every year, you know. So to save the people, we have to go over and, and starve them out initially with a total embargo. Kill half a million of them that you're saving, right? Uh, through the State Department. You all know who was in it at the time. It's all through the news. I did the talks years ago on the radio on it. But uh, yes, half a million women and children alone were starved to death before they had the war start. And Madeleine Albright was questioned about that in a TV program. Did you think it was worth it, starving all those folk? Oh yes, I, I think it was worth it, worth it, she said. Well, there's a psychopath right there. You, you honestly can't really fit her into the category of human. I can't. Really, I can't. There was no trace of emotion or, or regret or not. No, see with Tony Blair. Asked if he'd do anything different again. Oh no, I wouldn't do anything again differently at all. The biggest, one of the biggest liars that, that brought Britain into uh, the same kind of war. Yeah, this is total corrupt. We're living in total corruption. But again, it's, it's chronology. We, we must comply with the corruption to make it work. Huh? We supply the troops for the wars. All young guys will believe what they're told. They can't believe they're, they're, they're living in a monster country. Actually, that's changed since, since the advent of games, video games of all kinds. Um, they've, they've, they've trained a whole generation not to think about rights and wrongs for the reasons you're killing and slaughtering people. You just want to go out there and rack up points to an extent. 
but before that, they had to really give you, uh, you know, this is why you're doing, and it would make sense to you during the Cold War. Lots of young folk would, would join the military. Uh, and, um, and they'd also go off and fight in different faraway lands, etc. Believing, a lot of them were believing in, in what they were told it was all for, or having faith at least that, that those above in your country had good reasons for doing it. And, if, and the sad part is yeah, the ones above you did have good reasons for doing it. They profited from it. <laughs> that was a good reason from it, you see. Sad, isn't it? But you know, corruption in society is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal, and and it's shameless. They're shameless at the top in all the countries, and we do live in a more of a psychopathic era. Don't forget, um, psychopaths give you when they when they rule your country. Uh, eventually, if, if they get what they want, was an atheistic population. Psychopaths have an awful time fighting, and so do so the communists. Call it what you want, totalitarians, tyrannies. They have a hard time trying to fight those who are religious, so they have to outlaw, slaughter all the, all the religious, or, or ban them completely. Because, because when when the folk have something they believe in to stand up for, they're far more uh, dedicated to, and willing and energized to overthrow tyranny. Than if they're atheists themselves. If they're atheists, they won't do it. So, like, no, no, won't, won't. so the, the atheists can be manipulated much more easily. But when psychopaths are in control, you see, they've eliminated all competition. Uh, like the big idea theory, they're terrified of the big idea. In fact, they, 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 they stole the big idea, like Bush Senior, he said that too. A big idea, he says. A new world order, yeah. And, um, Matsu Tung said the same thing, Mayo. The big idea was the only thing that made him afraid. He was, at that time, he was talking of, of, a, of folk who had a real religious cause, because they're unstoppable when they get going, and they know this. So, when psychopaths rule you totally in an atheistic society, they have no problem recruiting youngsters and paying them well, like mercenaries, to go out with, off a bread slaughter. It's much easier to do it because they give you a psychopathic culture. That's one of the the symptoms of the fact you're conquered uh, when they they give you a psychopathic culture. And so folk are not necessarily completely psychopaths will follow it too and follow, have a lot of the traits of them, but they're not truly psychopaths. And that's how we are today. Most folk who are out to the top um, worship the, the, the psychopathy uh, success stories and they want to get all those things too and, but if they're not careful, especially they get on drugs and so on, on the way which can blunt your emotions um, you can definitely simulate very very well the psychopathic personality because uh, the, the, their emotions definitely get blunted I should really just mention this as an afterthought too for those who've been in the military for years, uh, pharma, big pharma, had worked really closely in the, with experimentations on those with PTSD. You've all read, I'm sure, the stories over the years of uh, even trying to create a virus that would go into part of the brain to eradicate uh, certain memories. This is, this is what they hoped they could do uh, by also using drugs, you see.
and certain drugs they give to the high um, special forces, so they give it to, to them. Uh, I think Atavan was one, and uh, some of the, the lorazepam types too. But Atavan was was one of the favourite ones for, for some years. That literally would, would would dull and flatten the, the, the emotional instincts of the parents and the troops. And um, if they got the PTSD coming away from the military, uh, coming out of the military, uh, they'd they'd put them on that too. To, to again try to flatten them, and and it would, it would, it would it, it, everything they'd done would recede into a kind of la la land, and but they but they would also blunt their emotions and with relationships and everything. They go kind of berserk at times, and if they took alcohol, uh, it would have amazing effects at times, because the liver that breaks down drugs or alcohol that breaks it down as you're drinking, eh? Um, the liver would start to accept the, the, the drug. I'm talking about when they're drinking at the same time as taking the drug, the, uh, or then, then they took the drug with alcohol still in them. The drug would exacerbate the breakdown of the alcohol, and then, then the, the liver would accept the drug as a substitute for the alcohol. And it would have this intensification uh, episode, and they go into total blackout. That's, that's what happens with a lot of the PTSD uh, soldiers and so on. And so they can't, they don't know a lot of them, but not, don't, don't take any of the drugs that are prescribed along with uh, alcohol. Absolutely not. And I think even the Prozac group too. Again, Prozac was going to be the world's cure to all problems, remember? That's how they, that's how they put it out there. They launched across the world, and every newspaper ran with it. Coincidentally, isn't it? Massive two-page spreads in all the papers. A wonder drug that would get rid of all the world's problems and and uh, make everybody discontent, you know. And and they had the same thing then too with with uh, these particular drugs, which eventually uh, caused parents and mums too to even kill their kids. At time to go berserk, blackouts. Anyway, uh, this is the world in which we live, eh? And now, of course, uh, uh, there's so many drugs in society uh, that are prescribed. Uh, a lot of them weren't prescribed, but they're prescription drugs too. You can buy them on street corners. Uh, really, really uh, heavy-duty type drugs of all kinds. Uh, and cocktails of drugs some of the youngsters will take too and drop with them. And uh, a lot of the other ones coming in, and, and fentanyl and so on. And um, coming in from China, etc., and elsewhere too. Very lethal drugs if you get a combination. Of and they're at their padding, uh, their heroin with it now to the sellers uh, to put less uh, the product of, of heroin and and uh, and their and their, their mixes and their fentanyl product and I put in the fentanyl in there too. And, and it's rather sad what's happening, isn't it? But there's no great crisis mentioned about it really. Even before uh, the COVID idea was unleashed, and it been on the books for years, uh, then we can go back to at least 2000, uh, 2005, in fact, with uh, the exposés that are coming out now about the huge test pandemics that they're going to have in, by the WHO. And I'll put that up tonight too, one of them, 2005. And it's quite interesting how they would put out this plan for massive worldwide exercises, real type exercises. Well, is that what we're going through now or what, you know? Because before it, before all this, you, you, they knew 
we're going into a stagnant time where, where money isn't moving. Who cares about investment companies supposedly soaring? They're completely unrelated to the average person. We're in a jobless recovery. We heard that before Obama <laughs> and through Obama's period up to the present time, the jobless recovery. Okay, everything's going fine, but there's no jobs. Uh, so the whole pandemic thing was to bring in the next part of the system, the new wave, you might call it the new wave, uh, the part of the system, the third way, and sometimes call it the fourth way, the fourth industrial revolution, and the WEF. All planned long ago, they knew they'd have to get us to this stage, and, we, and that they would get us to this stage, and now it's time to ram it all through, you see. And most folk will comply, unfortunately, because they're terrified. Uh, their propaganda works on them. Their indoctrination works on them. Because it was, it took on them. It's like vaccination, when they mention if something took, meaning did it, did it create a response for antibodies in your system against a particular, whatever they're vaccinating against. And, and some folk it doesn't, because sometimes you often wonder if it anything to do with it at all. But anyway, They'll say, did it take or did it not take? And if it didn't take, well, there's no antibody response there, you see. It's the same with propaganda and indoctrination. The early indoctrination that Lowell talked about was imperative for subsequent lifelong propaganda and indoctrination to take on the person. If the initial uh, few years of properly sequenced indoctrination uh, wasn't was absent, then the person would be more wiser. They could see through uh, eventual propaganda down through their lifetime. Just amazing, isn't it? I'll touch tonight too on on uh, the European talk that they had. There's a video up there. It's, it's unfortunate they only give you a little bit of it for the public because the, the rest of it they, they, they didn't show the public the rest of it. Uh, but you see the EU Commission group at the top with, with the WHO and the usual uh, culprits taking part in this, this panel on how they're going to handle COVID and, and, and make the folk accept with all their dictates and so on. Mozilla, a representative from, from Mozilla was there to make sure they, they'd also lead, lead you off into the searches, that you're, the good searches, not the bad ones, mean the ones that they've, that they've refuted for advice or fake news. This is a terrible time to be, to, to really, if, to be, it's a terrible time, I would say, for all of us, but it's a terrible time for those who know you're being lied to on every turn you take, where the internet in real time is bombarding you with algorithms, for you personally, they know you per- perfectly well, and, and they'll lead you off into searches that have nothing to do with what you're looking for. But it's what they've decided they want you to, 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 to look at. So you'll, that's the only information you'll get to make you come to the conclusion. I guess that's, that is the, all the information there is. No, it's not. But they, they actually have that on the go. So at this European meeting, you'll, you'll hear them discuss it. And, uh, and they also had a person from, I think it was, was it Facebook and there as well and, um, compliance teams and all the rest of it. And, and how they'd be ruthless with anybody who's, who's not, who's actually saying anything independent from the, from the authorized propaganda that's out there. They, how they'd hammer them basically, or ban them. And this is, this is incredible, to, an incredible time to live and witness it. Because most folks still won't get it. 
the first thing he did in the Bolshevik revolution, as I say, he had this group who used all the other factions and, and, and socialistic factions and different parties, all under socialism at the time in Russia. They used all the groups, because they need numbers to overthrow a regime. It doesn't matter what kind of regime it is. And then they literally, in one night, the, the, the smaller group, the Bolsheviks, jumped over and took the, took, took the whole system over for themselves. It's the same thing you're watching with Antifa that admits, um, uh, along with, with Black Lives Matter, uh, its leaders are all trained Marxists, you see, and organizers for doing what they're doing. But above them, of course, there's a faction, again, uh, who funds it, and, and who will then supply them with the, the leaders, once they've got what they think they, they wanted, and they'll supply with the leaders. And you'll, you'll find that the ones you're seeing on the streets will all suddenly go quiet, you see? And uh, and then you'll have the, the same... What you're witnessing is a Bolshevik... Re- I've said it, Bolshevik revolution. said that months ago. That's what you're seeing. It's Bolshevik. Using everybody else, and even the Antifa group, they said they're waiting for a spike to jump or piggyback on top of. So they always use a group that they'll say is, is victimized, and but they jump on and they, they take over the movement. No matter how real the cause was to begin with, you see. Very, very Bolshevik. And, uh, and, and I tell you, I, I'll also put up a clip of, um, or I might not, I might, well, it's up to yourselves if you want to watch it. I, I, I've got the whole thing here of, of the so-called inquiry and, and, and uh, the, the, where some of those in the Congress, U.S. Congress, are drilling, uh, bar. And, and I, and, um, it, it was astonishing to watch from my perspective because I thought this, this is awfully familiar. A lot of the women who, who came on, the far left women, uh, the, the, the faces were grimaced in anger and hatred, you know. And regardless of Barry, but he, he couldn't get a word in edgewise, you know. It was the same group really that had, had tried to overthrow Trump before, I think, during inquiry. Uh, same people, you know. And I thought, this, this is awfully familiar. Uh, why is it? Fa- when I realized, it was a show trial. This is what you had in the Soviet era. <laughs> uh, when they had to throw, you know, try to get, to, to, to validate why, what they were doing at the top. Because everyone was so corrupt, very quickly. And the folk were starving and, and unhappy. And so, so you must throw a few folk to the wolves, as they say. Uh, a few sacrifices, but they got they got some uh, some folk, and and these were show trials. That's where George Orwell got his idea for 1984, where where the brainwash you, the torture, and all the rest of it um, as a victim. You know, because you you were overthrowing the system, you're subversive, even if you didn't know it yourself. And eventually, they'd have you agreeing with them on everything. I went into the the pro proletariat area. And I had sex with women and contracted syphilis and I spread it and all these incredible admissions. That's where he got all that from for his book, 1984. And, uh, but they had the real show trial and these guys were like zombies. Admitting to all kinds of ridiculous things that had nothing to do with. Just, just fictitious, farcical things. That's what it was like, you know. 
Except at the bar, of course, it wasn't at that stage. Of course, say, okay, okay. You know. No, but that's what you were seeing. Because whatever you said, they twisted it, and, and they'd repeat it back in, in their own words, uh, and it was all accusatory. That that wasn't any kind of uh, rational debate or, or discussion or inquiry. But what you're seeing is shades of things to come. Because the, the people who are, who are grimacing their faces in anger, I mean, hatred and anger. Do you want folk who got showing hatred and anger uh, running any kind of legal system in the country? Do you really want that? Uh, do you want that when, it's, when, they, when they end up with, with uh, death squads? With their new revolution? Do you really want that? Because you're going to get it. If you, if you don't say, hey, that's enough. That's, that always happens, you see. And so much for your fair inquiry, you know. We shall unleash the nihilists and the atheists this Saturday, long, long ago. Now I have to remind everyone again to help me tick along here by donating at cuttingthroughthematrix.com uh, because I, uh, I do all this myself, this work, and it takes money. It takes my whole life, basically, to, to do it. And I depend upon you to keep me going because uh, it's expensive, naturally, and I have to live somehow and definitely way below the standards of most folk. Uh, But uh, uh, it it costs a lot just to keep all these sites going and telephone bills and things like that. So help me take along and donate and send a few bucks to cuttingthroughthematrix.com. You'll find out how to donate, etc. Thank you. Now I'll get off the topic a little bit, but it's all, I guess it's still on the topic. Albert Pike, who was the head at one point of the, the Scottish right of Freemasonry that, that wasn't Scottish. He was also the head at one point, again, of the World Revolutionary Movement, as it was called then. And you find all the top uh, people who, different factions, again, before the Bolsheviks took over in Russia, all the other revolutionaries and anarchists at the time were all Masons. And Trotsky himself, uh, I've mentioned before, wrote a book, uh, different books. When he died, he was in the middle of, uh, and he wrote about that, uh, of trying to write one of the biggest um, collection of Freemasonry and its ideals and so on. Uh, and he'd write it all. He was writing it at the time. He started that in prison long before that, before the revolution of the Bolsheviks, and that, where he was introduced to it. But uh, people have no idea that that's what the Masonry was involved with. And the, the 20th century Western version is very, very, it's very tepid <laughs> compared to its real purposes, um, especially at the working class level. But but really, as I've said before, yeah, Albert Pike trained or he appointed Mazzini to take over. And Mazzini himself um, took over the World Revolution Movement and went over to Europe, etc. But uh, eventually it was, it was changed to be the World Revolutionary Communist Party. And eventually, uh, of course, uh, Lenin took that over. Um, but then the, the Bolshevik uh, faction, which was really the ones who were, who'd, again, they, they piggyback on top 
and they're, put, they're put there by the big, the richest folk on the planet, even them, to take over the movement, and that's what happened to Russia. It's interesting, again, just as a sideline, because my mind goes this way at times, that Bertrand Russell's wife was affiliated with the revolutionary movement. Don't forget, too, the po- big poets like Shelley and they were, they were, they were all, um, uh, part of the, the, the Freemasonic revolutionary movement at the time. That coupled a bit of the more modern new agey type ideas in with it too. And ideals, because they'd get away from just pure materialism into something that would try and, and replace the spirit, the kind of fake spiritual side of it too. Uh, so, and she, of course, married uh, the daughter of the World Revolutionary Movement, or one of the, 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 the leaders of the World Revolutionary Movement in his day too. But Lord Bertrand Russell, his father, his, his father married a, a woman whose, um, her side of the family were deep revolutionaries. And uh, it wasn't uncommon for Mazzini to visit them, in fact. Quite amazing for them to be involved with British lords, or is it? Maybe that's quite the norm, in fact. And Shelley, of course, was a revolutionary. He married uh, one of the guiding lights of socialism in his day, too, to bring in this wonderful utopia. And um, Lord Byron was another one as well. Uh, again, those involved in the arts, as you say, of cultural arts and so on, and you know, literature and entertainment, as always, were, are all part of the revolution to always, and getting well paid for it too, even to this present day, to bring in the idea of uh, a utopia. The Soviet system itself worked forever, uh, 70 years, to bring in a utopia which could never be reached because utopias are fictitious, you see. That's it there. Similar to, to Carmen talking about, George Carmen uh, talking about the big club, as a, you know, and, and it's a big club at the top and you're not in it, you see. And he said too, but the American dream, he says, of course it's a dream, the only time you can believe in it is when you're asleep. Because it doesn't exist. It's the same thing, it's utopia. They say humans are awfully devious and when you get groups of psychopaths combining together, and give themselves fancy, very legitimate sounding, important names to rule you without your permission. They disappoint themselves near there until a generation grows up and they've always been there, so they must be normal. Other private, private clubs are ruling, are ruling over you. And they're very cunning at the top, very, very cunning. They have uh, professional liars and, and persuaders on their payrolls, very well trained ones now. They can con the public into anything. Again, as you, they go to higher schools of conology and learn how to do it and get well paid to do it too. But you must always influence the youth. The youth are awfully important. And all, old, old, even in, even in biblical times, there's passages in, in the Old Testament of, of very similar to Revelation later on in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament about children turning up against their parents and how it can be done. Plato talked about it too. He said that, that um, even music might have to be licensed at times for musicians to, to push because uh, he says they can so easily, the right kind of music and lyrics can, uh, with cunning people can stir up the youth to revolution. And this is always understood how to do it. You must always get the youth first and promise them utopias. 
and that they're going to change the world for the better. And, and again, you train them too. And they've had a long time of training them in the Western uh, schools and colleges uh, to hate the older generation and, and really make them believe that, that, oh, the world's dying and the planet's dying. And they really believe it. Right? And that, that, oh my God, the climate change is man-made and it's all those baby boomers that caused it, those greedy, greedy, selfish people. They believe all this indoctrination because this is the, this is the type of communist indoctrination. Train them who their enemy is so when they turn them loose on the older folk, they will quite happily go and kill them because it's been done before. Not that long ago too. I mentioned it before too in, the, in, in Mao's Cultural Revolution in China. It was the same kind of thing. He authorized his students to turn on those who, and again, this is a Trotskyist technique actually, which is perpetual revolution, but Mao used it for the Cultural Revolution, and they, they would turn against their own teachers and parents. They killed a lot of them too, and dragged them through the streets, the older folk. Because even though they were under communism, they still had contaminated ideas simply because they remembered life before uh, communism. So you eradicate them. This is what Stalin did the same thing of contaminating. Very good term, actually. Uh, and it's, uh, there's a lot of truth to the term as well. Uh, you, you can't unlearn something. Uh, especially if you've witnessed other systems in your own lifetime, you can't unlearn the fact you've witnessed them, you've thought about them. And so, because what they want is a totally, totally subservient, true believing population. And you might say to them, do you know it was different before communism? We didn't have all this, this rationing and, and, um, we weren't dependent on even foreign countries feeding us at times. You know, that's bad news to put that kind of stuff out, you see. But the, the key to this, this this revolution right now you're going through is it is not grassroots. I've said it before, this revolution is the next phase to the next system that the elites already own. It's their revolutions. And it's against the people who don't understand it yet. That's why it's a revolution. You may object to where they're taking you with, with their fourth industrial revolution nonsense and the great global reset and redistribution of wealth to keep the young folk happy. They're not revolutionaries happy that this is, it's not going to be that at all. It's going to go in to, in, in, in stages into total poverty, total austerity. They'll call it austerity to begin with. Well, it's just austere, you know. That means you, you, your patches aren't visible in your clothing yet. Poverty is when you, when your knees are poking through your pants. But, uh, it's just, again, it's chronology. And I hope you understand how it's going to get played to the public. Uh, they want to reduce the population of the world. The, the WEF has already said a few years ago, if they could reduce energy supplies to the public, that's the electricity, gasoline, the things that bring your food to you, to the stores and all the rest of it, diesel, you name it, yada, yada, yada. Uh, then eventually, with, with, with cold climates, not, you know, you see folk dying off like they already have in Britain. They've had it for years now in Britain. And it's acceptable for thousands of elderly to die in their homes because they can't afford their fuel bills. As the same countries can take in thousands of migrants from across the planet and put them up and feed them and so on. What you're doing with all of this is accepting worth, 
life worth and life value. What you're actually accepting is this science called bioethics. And I'll touch maybe on, on that to remember tonight as well. Bioethics is, uh, again, it's the, the technocratic way of running the world and, and classifying folks according to importance and less importance and absolute useless eaters, as Russell would have said himself, useless eaters. Hmm? And the Darwinian groups too. And the lucky gene club that uh, Bill Gates and his wife and Oprah and all that um, attend as well. Or the Margaret Sanger group, you know, where she called the people weeds, the children weeds. Very much eugenics, you see. Or, or Julian Huxley, that also helped set up the uh, founder of UNESCO. Small world, they, this, this same organizations just keep circling around and coming up in conversation. All the same people over and over and over. Eh? And you're not supposed to ever catch on to the real agenda behind it. So the, the richest folk on the planet are bringing in their global reset by the World Economic Forum. They already own all the resources of the world. You'll notice the Antifa groups are not screaming about the big, big top uh, industrials that bring them their cell phones and so on, you know. <laughs> Instead, they're, they're smashing mainly small businesses, mom-and-pop stores and so on. I could go on and on about it, but I won't. But, but the thing is, the WF has said... They're going to bring in uh, literally a redistribution of their wealth. Well, whose wealth? And, and uh, again, the revolutions will find eventually that, although a lot of them will be dealt with too, obviously, because when they see that they're not getting what they want after after the revolution, uh, the ones who've, who've been on the streets before, they're all known who they are, and they start disappearing. That's what happens in communist revolutions over and over again. Hell is repetition, isn't it, eh? And you see it all the time. So yeah, the richest folk on the planet are going to bring you into a state of austerity as they proclaim that they're redistributing wealth. Uh, the folk who own, they own nations and islands across the planet, you know, these same people. But they're going to redistribute your wealth, you see. And that means that the folk at the bottom as well until you're all flat, flat broke. That's where it's supposed to go. And they bring down the population. Then they'll say, Look, we, we just can't bring in excess people anymore into the world. And uh, we've got to, again, through, again with bioethics, and again, the Rockefellers put a whole bunch of stuff out recently on bioethics, with using laws. Now they've, got, now they've got laws to do with bioethics, who should be treated with this and treated with that and kept alive and not kept alive. And, and we've already got it in Canada before COVID with uh, euthanasia and hospitals. Etc. And now you're being trained. Or, 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 are you really essential to business to keep the planet going? You, what's your, what's your status? You know, for lockdown. Oh no, you, you know, you, you make bicycle wheels. No, we can't have that. We don't, we don't need you right now. You're not, you're, you know, you're not essential. They're talking eugenics and bioethics to you when they say these things. I hope you start to get the picture here. <laughs> as you all get categorized. And that will also to do with redistribution of the wealth. Well, you see, because you're not essential, you, do, you will not be getting as much as a, a healthy person that we might need to, for the military to go off and fight the foreign wars. They're going to bring justice across the world, you see, as we spread the revolution. 
but to feed them better than you. Because you are not. I mean, why don't you accept your non-essential and do the right thing? Yeah. And then they'll say, well, we can help you there do the right thing. Because of, because they've already passed all the laws. Eh? Folk never catch on. Isn't it, again, a small world, eh? Oh, what a wicked web we weave when first we practice to deceive. And you find there, there's, there's this, this Fauci, this, this career, almost like a private bureaucrat attached to a, a, a government-funded agency, but it's still a private agency. And uh, he's got his fingers in so many pies. And also he, he's well in with Bill Gates and he's taken funding from him before. And he's involved with the vaccine companies, knows them all, yada, yada. And, he, and whatever he gives a nod to, to make this, that, or the other, is going to get billions thrown of tax money thrown at them immediately. I mean, come on here. And, but, but, but Fauci's wife. And she's into bioethics, you see. She's a professional bioethicist. And which really is, is a, is a branch of eugenics, folks. Who's important? Who's not important? Uh, what, what is it ethical for us, the ruling technocrats, to do to the public? What's ethical, you see? Don't, don't bring the public in us in what they think. No, it's to all be done to the public. So we'll make up the decision, the, the, the rules of bioethics and what we should do and how we can handle and what we can do to the public if we need to. And this is what it is. That's who's going to live and who's going to die. Astonishing stuff we're getting dished out now these, these days. This is not conspiracy. There's facts out there, published stuff from the, from the, the culprits themselves. But it's science, you see, science is a god now. Anything that's scientific must be good. I mean, isn't that what they say? It's science, yeah. And science can constantly change its mind. Because it's science. It is. We've got fresh data on this and fresh data on that. And everything that was permitted a few years ago is now banned and all the things that actually were banned years ago before that, but we'll actually bring them back today even. I mean, we can do what we want because we're science. I prefer the religions because religion told you what you could and couldn't do. And it was fixed pretty well in stone. That was it. But these scientists just say, oh, we've learned something new. We have, we've got to, we've got to bring an extra, an extra, an extra level of austerity to this particular category here because the world's starving. And so you are non-essential. Let's just, why don't we just cut back on you? Huh? And you think I'm kidding here. I remember reading the articles a few months ago when the hospitals, I think in Canada did it too. Oh, if, if this, this pandemic gets bad, we'll have to decide in advance with the bioethics committees who can live and get treatment, who can, who, who will, who can get treatment. And, and it's going to be those that have got more chance of getting pulled through. It all comes from the WHO and Bill Gates Foundation. All, all this information. Doesn't matter who's parroting it. Yeah, here we go, you know. At one time hospitals lit, and, and literally trained people to do it their utmost to save everybody. To the bitter end, even though it was, it was a foregone conclusion at times when people were really, really dying, you'd still do your best to take care of them. Best until the bitter end. That's how it used to be. But getting back to Julian Huxley, he said, we'll have to train the public. His big, big speech, you know. We'll have to train the public, he said, to knock, and knock them off their pedestal of being the supreme creature on the planet and train them that they're just another animal. 
Only then will they listen to us and do what they're told, basically. That's what he was getting at and with, with, with humanism. You also see this character too, this um, video, the link I'll put up from the EU group on the COVID idea. And, and you'll see one of them, a few of them, they're all working at the United Nations, or, or, or the, some of them work at the United Nations, some of them are, are the top medical advisors, supposedly for different countries, including the US. Uh, but you should hear them talking, oh, humanism. After all, humanism is our goal, and by humanistic policies, we must run this, this system. and. Humanism, humanism as a religion, you know, it's classified as a religion, folks. You have to go into, I gave these talks years and years and years and years ago, secular humanism and its goals and agendas, you know. You, you see, the, the system that runs all of this, claim, they'll, they'll claim to the public, not that they've atheized most of the public, well, you see, we're humanistic, you see, it's for the, it's for the good of humanity, so we're humanists. But then they're going to tell you that you have to do what you're told by specialists because as they bring in a quality, they, they tell you that a lot, of them, a lot of them are better qualified than an average, average person to rule the rest in certain areas. Double speak, double think. Eh? <laughs> yeah, we're all equal now. But now, hey, so-and-so's good at so-and-so. You do what he tells you because cause, cause they're an expert. There you go. What a world, eh? And, and most folk never figure it out because they are tuning in to the horror station every day, whatever horror station it is for television, to get their daily dose of, of, of psychologically prepared horror and fear. But from the, the sage groups, etc., you know, with its handouts to all the media, but occasionally exaggerate the problems to, to scare the people who are not complying into compliance. All this does terrorize the public. And you, how dare they use the public funds purse to terrorize the public? Ah. Mm-hmm. And you know what, the same folk will go and vote again, you know. Well, well, well we're living in a free society. Yeah. If you ever I read the books by Brzezinski, Zygmunt Brzezinski, and uh, Kissinger, and and also read lots of reports throughout your life. These guys put out constantly. They loved it. They loved the media attention, and they, they belonged to associations and, and the CFR and trilateral groups and so on. Lots of publications about them, giving little talks and lectures. What struck me was initially. Uh, Many of the goals they, they, they wanted and the methods to attain the goals were the ones that communists advanced. And then you find out that, that at the top level, which they do talk, talk about at times through their higher academia, that whatever is efficient is what they'll do. They'll take, doesn't matter who creates it, they'll use it in different, different times during their agenda. And, uh, and, and Brzezinski also, also used to say that every country, before it can be accepted as civilized, has to go through its Marxist revolutionary phase. He was adamant on that point. Now, if people hear things, but they, and, and they relate it to themselves according again to the class they're in. So the working folk will think, well, well, that's good, you know, maybe, maybe it's good we'll get some rights, we'll have unions. No, he wasn't meaning that at all. What, what he was meaning 
was experts ruled the system from the top, high, massive bureaucracy, massive government, massive centralized government, runs everybody else during that particular phase. And and the public just jumped to it or else. There's no debating it or putting an objection in. Again, like, like Justin Trudeau has given talks on how he admired China during this whole COVID thing because they don't have to put up with uh, satisfying the public or following uh, de- democratic rules. You have to, well, they can't just jump and do that because we've got rights here and, and public input, at least the public think they do. Uh, things like that. Whereas in China, the Politburo just decides, experts decide, and they push something and it's immediately obeyed and implemented. So for efficiency's sake, I like that, you see. So that, that's exactly what has to go into the, with the so-called democratic systems to be phased in under crisis and to uh, really, really a technocratic phase, non-democratic. But again, remember, the same agencies in Council and Foreign Relations members and so on, not all of them, of course, they'll, they'll take their turns of who says what in their own articles, but you, you'll see it popping through every so often uh, that efficiency must be maintained and even even uh, increased to make the world run better with all the problems it's got today, efficiency, efficiency. And so all your rights get stripped off you for efficiency's sake under crisis, you say. Then you never get them back, of course. Now, as I've said, it's a small world. I've mentioned some of these articles before, but it's important you remember them because most folk can't remember very much at all after about a week because they're bombarded with daily data of all kinds. You see? And you have to remember what's, and be selective as to what's important to remember, and not to be, uh, you know, conned and pulled out of your searching for any particular topic into all the things that the algorithms will, will grab you and take you into. They're completely a waste of time. But again, Bertrand Russell, I, I mentioned him a lot because he was so open about it. Most folk didn't read his books when he was alive, except those who ruled, you see. That's how they used to do it. And um, that's where you, where you find so much of, of the truth coming out of their own mouths. And psychopaths like to boast, actually, how successful they are, especially when it comes to chronology and, and controlling and, and manipulating the public. But again, a small worlds have said before that these characters were part of revolutionary movements, intergenerational. Don't forget that Thomas Paine talked about that in his own, his own memoirs, that he belonged to a family of, of revolutionaries, international revolutionaries, he said. Folk have no idea how old these things are, and they, their, their children end up going into to the train from an early age. And Bertrand Russell is no exception. And they worked for the for the Crown, you know, Bertrand Russell, Lord Bertrand Russell. And this this article said that his father was Lord Amberley, and mother was Catherine Louisa Stanley. Uh, very important because I say that the wife because. Um, you catch on to, to the, the revolutionary side of it too often through the wife too, you know. And she was a suffragette at one point. And the suffragette movement, by the way, was a wealthy class at the top who uh, were also uh, communists. M- many of them left London eventually and over to live in, in Russia after the revolution and during the revolution, in fact. And they were not just friendly, you know, just chaining themselves to, 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 to railings outside 
number 10 Downing Street and so on in London before that. They were, uh, they, they were involved, some of them, in bombings, you know, anarchist bombings. So anyway, it says that, uh, that was his wife, Catherine Louisa Stanley. And she was pally, it says, with Mazzini, Viscountess Amberley, daughter of Second Baron Stanley of Alderley. So it said, this is what Russell said in one of his books, Scientific Societies. Because the whole idea was to get a scientific society run in. Scientific societies are as yet in their infancy. It may be worthwhile to spend a few moments in speculating as to possible future developments of those that are oligarchies. It's to be expected that advances in physiology and psychology will give governments much more control over individual mentality than they now have even in totalitarian countries. Fichte laid it down that education should aim at destroying free will. I've mentioned this before. So that after pupils have left school, they shall be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. Now, this is this isn't a guy who just speculated in some kind of wish fulfillment uh, pastime. Um, he, he knew all the top scientists of his day in social sciences and psychology and all that, and uh, he were exp- and he had his own experimental school. He was given a charter to run an experimental school, where what he did with his children uh, as, as a so-called ultra-progressive school back in the nineteen twenties. Would have got anybody else maybe hung <laughs> in those days, because he was trying to do sexual development and sexual interaction with school children, get them all to see if they if they could the more they they become promiscuous, and and actually give them praise for their behaviour, to see if they grew, and then follow up to see when they got if they got older, if they would even bother getting married or just have multiple partners, which is all part of destruction of the family unit, coming from a British lord, right? So, he's, yeah, he goes into that and he says, he said that uh, diet, of course, this is a diet, this is a famous part, injections and injunctions, will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable. And any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. Gradually, by selective breeding, right, the congenital differences between the rulers and the ruled will increase until they become almost different species. A revolt of the plebs, the plebeians, would become as unthinkable as an organized insurrection of sheep against the practice of eating mutton. In like manner, the scientific rulers will provide one kind of education for ordinary men and women and another for those who are to become holders of scientific power. Ordinary men and women will be expected to be docile, industrious, punctual, thoughtless and contented. Of these qualities, probably contentment will be considered the most important. In order to produce it, all the researches of psychoanalysis, behaviorism and biochemistry will be brought into play. And of course, what they really brought in was massive entertainment society to keep them docile and, and also a program on, 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 cause they copy behavior that they see in movies and so on. And fashions, yeah. And it says that, uh, all the boys and girls will learn from an early age to be what is called cooperative. That is, to do exactly what everybody else is doing. 
initiative will be discouraged and these children and insubordination without being punished will be scientifically trained out of them. Well, it was happening today with uh, awful getting banned and getting warned on their Facebook accounts and their uh, other YouTubes and all the other social media platforms that are out there that they're onto. And you're not getting trained again to cooperate or shut up or you get punished, you see. This, is, this, is, this didn't suddenly come along and you, this is planned long ago. All the boys and girls will learn from an early age to be what is called cooperative, right? So you all be doing the same things as everybody else. Second, as regards population, if there is not to be a permanent or increasing shortage of food, crisis, 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 COVID, yeah, did it. Agriculture must be conducted by methods which are not wasteful of soil and increase of population must not outrun the increase in food production rendered possible by technical improvements. To deal with this problem, it would be necessary to find ways of preventing an increase in world population if this is to be done otherwise and by wars, pestilences, and famines. It will demand a powerful international authority. Hmm? A powerful international authority, right? So pestilences and famines eh, and wars. What do you hear right now? What's the whole thing about, oh my God, it's just... Uh, uh, it's a disease. Oh, it's, it's going through the world, and and uh, you can't. Uh, the the economy is crashing because no one's allowed to work. That's the key to it. No one's allowed to work. <laughs> Locked down all the healthy people. It's all by design. You see, this is being fulfilled right now. Nothing to do with COVID. COVID's the excuse. You know. People aren't dying of COVID. They're dying of the response to COVID. Yeah. There might be a few that that may really die. But, but, but the fact is most of them are, are, are dying of utter fear and horror. Your, your immune system plummets sometimes 40% just through continuous fear. Yeah. And then it's got, this authority should deal out the world's food, food to various nations in proportion to their population at the time of the establishment of the authority. That's what's going to happen now, of course. If any nation subsequently increases its population, it should not, on that account, receive any more food. The motive for not increasing population would therefore be very compelling, and what method of preventing an increase might be preferred should be left to each state to decide. Well, they're all going through the United Nations, and they're probably aborting the children, aren't they? You know, It's, it's malthusing eugenics, you know. Of course, now they'll call it, well, it's not, it's, it's really bioethics, you see, and sustainability. And each state is, is each country. That was written in the 1950s, that particular book, I think it was Impact of Science and Society and so on. He also said, it says, in other words, if these things come about, these circumstances, right, then what, what could we do, apart from certain uh, deep-seated prejudices, the answer would be obvious. The nations, which are presently increasing rapidly, should be encouraged to adopt methods by which in the West the increase of population has been checked. Now, in the 50s, it's telling you the increase of population has has been checked. And they'd have to encourage the other countries that hadn't been checked outside of, say, uh, Europe and Britain and in America, to copy the same system. So it had already been checked. This population problem had been checked in the West. 
have you heard of sterility, folks? The big plague of sterility? He goes on to say, educational propaganda with government help could achieve this result in a generation. There are, however, two powerful forces opposed to such a policy. One is religion. It's always the same, right? The other is nationalism. Are you listening, eh? I think it is the duty of all who are capable of facing facts to realize and to proclaim that opposition to the spread of birth control, if successful, must inflict upon mankind the most appalling depth of misery and degradation, and that within another 50 years or so. And he said, I do not pretend that birth control is the only way in which population can be kept from increasing. There are others which, one must suppose, opponents of birth control would prefer. War, as I remarked a moment ago, has hitherto been disappointing in this respect. This is after two world wars. eh? I gave this talk years ago, and it actually says that for the harder thinking, which is uh, something I always say. War, as I remarked a moment ago, has hitherto been disappointing in this respect. It's also that a black death could be spread throughout the world once in every generation. Survivors could procreate freely without making the world too full. But what he's telling you there, obviously, is that uh, (laughs) all you do is keep releasing a black death and every kill off all the excess population that came from procreation, you see. So that's how it's going to be done. And um, this is really high-minded people which is himself and the class, his own class, and those he serves, even above him. Really high-minded people are indifferent to happiness, especially other people's. See, there's nothing personal in it to want to kill you off. It's not a deep-seated hatred, he's telling you, really. It's just, he has to be indifferent to it, and that's what it is. It says, however, I am wandering from the question of stability to which I must return. There are three ways of securing a society that shall be stable as regards population. The first is that of birth control. The second is that of infanticide or really destructive wars. And the third, that of general misery except for a powerful minority. So there's nothing new in all of the things that are happening now. And he belonged to the societies. Everything you're doing right now, in fact, and all the changes, and not just in fashion and in behavior, uh, from, uh, say, the 1950s, actually before that too, but through the 50s and 60s up to the present time, with increasing promotion of sexual promiscuity and with decreasing interference of the state coming in to deal with the the unwanted children problem, as they say, which is generally, um, through different guises, uh, abortion, right? Um, That was all, he was part of the the planning committees that worked, when they were given the right at the end of World War II, by the way, to create a new culture, a post-war culture for the world. And he worked with the top groups they were involved in creating the cultural changes that they foresaw would have to happen. And uh, they, they, they designed, the, including the fashions and the miniskirt and, and the heavy work on a, a contraception pill. And heavy work, too, to bring in uh, national health services that would be for the people to begin with, but then it would, it would gradually take over and over more and more rights of abortion and implement that, uh, and the public would would just accept it as normal eventually. And it is normal now, isn't it? 
and also the, the destruction of religion and destruction of the family unit. In other words, take away all possible opposition. And remember, every family is a small tribe. And folk who live in families have connections to other families. They're a bigger tribe. And they'll stand up when they have something in common, you see, as, as a huge tribe against government. So if you destroy all that popular in the family unit, there's nobody to stand up again in any numbers against anything that really matters. Those that do stand up are authorized armies. That are really employed. The leaders are actually employed and trained by those who own the system, and that's how bad it is, isn't it? Now I'm not giving you bad news. This is just fact. And if you understand fact, it actually alleviates a lot of the stress that folk feel because you start to understand why why things are happening, and then you start getting it. Or coming to peace with yourself to an extent because you understand why things are happening. It's not because you've done anything wrong and it's not because you have failed in anything or if you were richer you'd have more, more food or backups or something to get through these terrible times that are coming. No, no, no. You, you, you see, the elite take everything out of your hands. That's the whole, the whole problem with tyranny. It takes away your right to even sustain yourself eventually. Doesn't matter how much you try to, to look at it. That's what they're aiming for now. For a society where they will dish out the food across the world. And then, as he said, those who, who haven't reduced their populations will get less until they, they deal with the problem. Like, like very quick dealing with the problem. Not executions. Of course it is. <laughs> of course it is, yeah. And you're all getting trained, as I said, right now. What are they training you? Are you essential? Oh no, I'm not really a son. I'm this little old bee, you know. Ah well, and maybe you should just join, put your name on this list here, you know, for, you know, I mean, there's more important folk that, that have to be kept alive and fed, you know. This is happening, folks, you know, and if you can't handle it, understand. Folk who can't handle it wouldn't listen to me. And there's others out there that just take my material anyway and, and parrot it in the same week. I do, they work for a lot of people who never mention me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they can put it across more softly or whatever, uh, mainly to get their own ratings or money coming in. But the fact is, I'm doing this not for not for that. I'm doing this just just to help those who need to know that there's people like myself uh, who had to know even when I was young. I had this this hunger to know what was really going on when things didn't make sense. When I saw even adults and my parents and other people accepting things they shouldn't accept. Unquestioningly, and uh, I remember asking them too. How, you know, uh, they, they could hear them when you're, when you're maybe at five or six. You hear them discussing the problems in money. I already saw the fallouts across my friends' homes and so on and on to the extent of, of folk in the misery because Britain was still under rationing. You know, for years, even when they stopped the rationing cards, folk couldn't afford the good food and <laughs> things like that. You were under fixed incomes and wages freezes and price so price freezes. Supposedly prices always went up, but they claimed they were frozen too. Uh, where literally a lot of homes you had meet, meters for electricity, to, even to get a heat if you didn't have coal or whatever, and you'd, you'd put a shilling in. And as it, as it kept, the, the, the guys would come in every so often and they'd readjust it. So you'd you start off getting maybe an hour of electricity for a shilling, then they'd cut it back. Until you had to put in, in about two shillings or even half a crown eventually, as to get the same amount of yard. And it was just disgusting. 
is, is the increase in the cost of energy. And here you go. It's all through this, the system right now. But God, you start increasing all energy because then your life, your, your health goes, everything goes down, folks, very quickly. Especially if you get cold climates, see? Eh? And the hot climates and you can't afford your air conditioning. You wait and see. Same thing. That's going to come. That's going to come, folks. That's what it's all supposed to come down to. But we're living through an agenda, as I say, in Russell, and, and many others like him. We're, we're on the boards, designing the future. That we're st- and it's not all finished yet, so the stuff that he worked on, there's still a lot to go yet. 